Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Today, we'll tackle the biggest question of all Who is God? We'll take a journey through Scripture together to discover what God is like, stopping at key moments to consider what this or that interaction tells us about Him. Here now is Theology Part 9, God. What I aim to do in this lecture is to describe for you a biblical theology of God as best I can. Obviously, the whole Bible talks about God all over the place, so this is a little bit difficult to do. But to start with, I want to talk about the distinction between ontology and functionality. But before I do that, I want to ask you to define for me the word theology. Theology. The study of God. Thank you. Thank you. The study of God. The study of theos. Right? So you have Theos right here, and then you have Logos, Theologos, the doctrine, the understanding of who or what God is. And there's, so that's what we're doing in this, in this lecture here, but there's really a difference, really two ways to go about this, and um, one of them is to focus on ontology, and the other one is to focus on function, which I, I've already mentioned this distinction to you before, but... If you look at ontology, you're asking the question, what is God? Or you're, you're looking at the question of substance, being, essence. If you're focused on function, then you're looking at what God does. What are his acts? What are his, what's his character? How does what God does reflect on who God is? All right? And so if you, if you take... For example, a, a traditional ontological approach to the question of God or to the subject of God, you're going you're gonna to come up with certain omnis, like omnipresent. What is God? God is an immaterial being that exists everywhere at the same time, omnipresent. You're going to say that God is omnipotent, omnipotent, right? God is all-powerful. You're going to say that God is omniscient. Omniscient is omniscience. Science is a, just a Latin word for knowledge. So God is everywhere present. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. And then you're going to say maybe something like omni-benevolent, that God is all-loving or all-good. And so you end up coming up with this list of sort of like abstract characteristics of what God is, you would probably say that God is immaterial, things like that. And this all comes out of a mindset or a practice called perfect being theology. Perfect being theology, which is where you start with the assertion, God is perfect, and then you ask the question, what's God like? If God is perfect, what is God like? Well, if God is perfect, then he would be all-powerful. He would know everything. He would be everywhere present, and so on. The scriptures don't really talk this way anywhere. I mean, you, there are verses you can use to sort of get there to these different things, but what I'm going to do instead of doing that and describing what God is, I want to cruise through scripture with you right from the beginning to the end and look at the question, what does the Bible tell us about God as far as what he does. So the very first thing then that God does in the Bible is what? Right. So the very first thing the Bible teaches us about God is that he is a creator. Now, if God's a creator, you would have to say, well, he's got to be really smart and really powerful, right? I mean, so you, there's not like uh, necessarily a conflict between these two ways of looking at it, ontology and function, but I do want to look at it from the Bible's perspective rather than imposing sort of like philosophical categories onto our discussion here. And so when we look at God, 
we see a creator who wants relationships with humans, right? The, what he does is he creates Adam and Eve, and he engages with them. He talks to them. I mean, we learn a lot in Genesis. I, I, I can't go on about all of it, but then we have Cain and Abel. You remember that incident in the Bible? God came to Cain. Wait, no, there was a sacrifice, right? There was a sacrifice. Cain offered a sacrifice. Abel offered a sacrifice. God accepted Abel's, but he did not accept Cain's sacrifice. And so Cain got really upset. And God came and talked to Cain before he killed his brother. You remember that? And God said to him, look, sin is crouching at the door and it desires to have you, but you must resist it. And then Cain basically said, no, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And he killed his brother anyhow. What that tells me about God is that God is very much interested in human affairs, but he's not controlling people to do what he wants them to do. You see, he comes to Cain and he talks to Cain and he says, look, don't do it. And Cain says, forget you, I'm going to do it. That tells me he cares, but he's not controlling, which I think is very important as far as who God is, is that he cares, but he's not controlling. Then we move through the Bible and we see that eventually humans reproduce and fill the earth to such a degree that in the time of Noah, the world is full of people that are violent and wicked. It says in Genesis chapter 6 that the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. That the world was full of violence. And there's this whole issue with the Nephilim, which I'm not going to get into here. But God decides to destroy the world. And so we see in Genesis chapter 6 that God is a God of judgment. He is a God who is not a pushover. He's not a wimp. He's not a wuss. If he decides to act in judgment, you're going to get a flood that will wipe out the entire world, except for Noah and his family. That's what we see from a biblical perspective. Then, not too long after that, humans start reproducing again, start filling the earth again, and they start getting spread out, and they start to build a tower, right? The Tower of Babel, or Babel, different ways to say that. And they say, let's build a tower reaching to the sky so that we don't get spread across the earth. And God looks down and he says, if they're, if they're already at this stage of development, anything they want to do is not going to be withheld from them. Let's go down there and confuse their languages so they can't cooperate with each other. In other words, God doesn't want the world to just go back to the way it was right before the flood and get to such a nasty state. So he wants to slow down human progress. And he introduces languages at the Tower of Babel, hence the babbling of the people. And what does that tell you about God? It tells you that he is very much concerned about human development. You know, he cares about individuals like Cain, even though he ended up being so evil. But he also cares about human history itself and development, that we would be able to survive and enjoy Him. But really, the biggest place where we learn about God is when we see Him interacting with people. Let's, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 12. In particular, Abraham, as it was with the kingdom, when it comes to understanding God, is a big deal. He's really important. And in Genesis chapter 12, we see the call of Abraham. When God first called Abraham and said, I want you to leave your country. And so in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. Yahweh, God, we should probably say that. So God also has a name, by the way, and it's, it's spelled like this. That's how it's spelled in Hebrew. Um, there are different ways to say it. Most people say Yahweh. Uh, another way to pronounce it is Yehovah. 
that uh, some scholars think that that's a more accurate pronunciation. But um, I, I typically just say Yahweh because it's kind of like the majority view, but also recognizing that could be wrong. But uh, so anyhow, it says there in Genesis chapter 12, that first verse, now the Lord said to Abram, when it says the word Lord there, you see how it's all capital letters? That's when it's the name of God. Okay. God calls Abraham. He says, go forth from your country. And essentially God's going to have his back. I'm going to bless those who bless you. Whoever dishonors you, I'm going to curse. That's what God says to Abraham. What does this tell us about God? It just tells us that he's looking for somebody to believe him. God's looking for somebody to trust in him, to do what he says. And so God gives Abraham three tests of trust. The very first test that God gives Abraham is leave your land. Abraham agrees. He leaves his land. A little later on, chapter 17, God says to him, all right, Abraham, here's what I want to do. I want you to circumcise all the males in your house and yourself and your son. His son Ishmael at this time. Now, that is a heck of a test of trust. <laughs> uh, and Abraham does it. He circumcises all the, ma the males in his house. And then last of all, the third great test that God gives to Abraham is God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, Isaac, whom you love, and I want you to offer him on one of the mountains to me that I will show you. This is called the Akedah. It's uh, just a Hebrew word for binding. And that's the third test that God gives to Abraham. And in the end, Abraham pulls through. He actually does bind his son. He lifts the knife to the sky, and he's ready to bring that knife down on his beloved son, whom he loves probably more than any other human on the planet, except for maybe Sarah. I don't know how that relationship was. But in that moment, God says, no, wait, now I know that you love me. Now I know that you trust me. Abraham trusts God explicitly. He believes God's promises. He left his native land. He trusted in God for the circumcision. He trusted in God for sacrificing his own son, which of course God stopped him from doing. And in the end, he died trusting in God. By the end of all this, God has made covenant after covenant after covenant with Abraham. And henceforth in his dealings, God calls himself the God of Abraham. That's how God calls himself. The creator of the heavens and the earth refers to himself as the God of this random Middle Eastern guy. Right? I mean, talk about an honor. And then later on when Abraham has his son, God works with him and he calls himself the God of Abraham and Isaac. And then his son comes along named Jacob, right? And then God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, when God introduced himself to Moses, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Abraham trusted in God, and as a result of that, God yoked himself to Abraham's name identifying himself by that name going forward. So if you ask a Greek, who is God? They say, oh, he's the omnipresent, omnipotent, greatest conceivable being. If you ask a Jew, who is God? They say, oh, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you see the difference? One is describing his attributes in an abstract, almost like scientific way. The other one is describing who God is based on what he's done. He's the God of Abraham. He interacted with Abraham. He worked with Isaac. He raised up Jacob. I mean, God did incredible things in Jacob's life to help him to gain humility, for one, and to trust in who he was. And so God is, the God of the Bible is inherently relational. Actually, right from the beginning, he seeks a relationship with Adam and Eve. Then we keep going through the Bible. We get to the book of Exodus. We see that Moses is called by God. And Moses is told by God, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say to him, let my people go. And that's what he does. Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. 
And Pharaoh replies, No! Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. Besides, I will not let Israel go. That's what Pharaoh says. I don't know Yahweh. I know Ra, I know Apis, I know Hathor, I know Nut, the sky god. I don't know Yahweh. I'm not letting your people go. That's what Pharaoh says, right? As a result of this specific question right here, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? to let Israel go. As a result of this specific question that Pharaoh asks, God gives a demonstration of who he is. Do you know who Yahweh is? He is the God who can turn your river to blood, slitting the wrist of Osiris, the God and protector of the river. He, so you have the 10 plagues here. As Babe Ruth is known for hitting home runs and Steve Jobs is known for making the iPhone, so Yahweh is known for the 10 plagues. This is like his most famous thing that he ever did. I mean, besides creation and before the time of Jesus, right? The 10 plagues are just huge in the Bible. And what does God do? He shows that he is the God above all other gods. That's the theological point of the 10 plagues is that he is a God above other gods. That's what the Ten Plagues teaches you. Every one of those Ten Plagues was targeted as a, at an Egyptian god. And Yahweh is, is, is flicking those Egyptian gods off their pedestal one by one, saying, you want to know who Yahweh is? Yahweh is the one who could take your frog god, Hecht, and cause it to re reproduce uncontrollably, and then kill him off, and then surrounding all of your dwellings are piles of rotting frog corpses. Because you know why? Yahweh is the true god, and Hecht is just a frog, a dead frog. I mean, this is the way these plagues go, right? I mean, who is the great god of Egypt? Ra, the sun god, right? God kills Ra for three days. For three days, there's no sun in the sky. Who's Yahweh? He's better than Ra. Ra didn't get in his chariot and pull the sun across the sky for three days. And so Yahweh is a god above the other gods. He is a god who is able to bring these powers to their knees or to unmask them as impotent. And so what God does then at the end of the time, the exodus of Egypt is he establishes a meal. Do you know what that meal is called? Passover, right? Passover, Hebrew word for Passover. Anybody? Pesach. The name of the meal itself is called the Seder. But this is a meal that God gives to his people and he says, I want you to have this meal every year. And at this meal, I want you to retell how, what I did in Egypt to your children. And there are certain points in the meal where a child is supposed to ask the question, why is today different than all the other days? And then the, the parent is supposed to say, because today is the day God delivered us from the gods of Egypt. Today is the day God delivered us from slavery in Egypt. And so God uses this strategy, it's a brilliant strategy, of a meal to imp imprint history, sacred history, so that it lasts generation after generation after generation in a culture that doesn't have literacy yet. I mean, you, like Moses, you have a few people that could probably read and write in their culture, but most people would have no idea what Hebrew letters were. So how do you, how do you communicate the faith generation after generation? You do it through parties meals, festivals. That's what God decided. Then after they get out of Egypt, the very first stop, once they're out, well, maybe not the very first stop, but shortly after they're out of Egypt, they get to Mount Sinai and God comes down on the mountain. And it's just like, it's just like the 4th of July. I mean, everything's going crazy. There's sounds there's a sound of a trumpet. The mountain itself is shaking. The ground is shaking. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's a fire on top of the mountain. It's like God has combined a lightning storm, a volcano, and an earthquake all at once. And then out of the midst of the chaos and the noise and the power, God says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first of the Ten Commandments. And then he goes through the rest of the commandments. You shall not make for yourself any graven images. You will not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. And right through. 
right? Don't steal, don't kill, and so on. Adultery, what else is left? What's that? Don't bear false witness and then don't co covet your neighbor or their stuff. What, is, what does that tell us? The incident of Mount Sinai tells us, once again, that God is, is powerful. We see his power, certainly through this as well. But also that he cares about, God cares about if his people worship other gods. In fact, that's the first thing, if you think about it, when God came down on the mountain and he spoke to his people, he said to them, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The first thing he says is, hi, I'm Yahweh. Nice to meet you. Second thing is, you should, you should have no other gods before me. So he's identifying his name, and then he's saying, our relationship, if we're going to have a relationship, it needs to be exclusive. Don't you cheat on me. That's what God's saying. I don't want you to have any other gods before me, and I don't want you to make any idols. No statues. Don't make a statue of me. Don't make a statue of other gods. No statues, no graven images. This just tells us what God is like. He, you know, he doesn't want these false representations. And he cares, he cares about how we interact with him, right? And he cares about how we interact with each other. The first several of the Ten Commandments are all about ver that vertical relationship. Have no other gods before me. Uh, don't make an idol. Don't take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. These are all commandments focused on that vertical relationship. But then the rest of the Ten Commandments are all about the horizontal relationship, which is to say God cares how we treat each other. This is an important thing we sometimes forget about in Christianity. We think, oh, well, I have my relationship with God and I'm fine. But then meanwhile, you're a jerk to your friends. That doesn't really work. You know, if you're going to love God, you have to also love your neighbor as yourself. So God is exclusive, but he also... He cares, he cares about us and how we treat each other. If you were going to name Yahweh as your God, you're not allowed to murder. If you're going to name Yahweh as your God, you're not allowed to cheat on your spouse. If you're going to name Yahweh as your God, you're not allowed to bear false witness. You're not allowed to covet your name. Covet, that's an internal thing. That's like desiring something that somebody else has and, and you know, letting that greediness get a hold of your heart. So this is, this is who God is, according to the Bible. And then we come to one of the most important verses, which I'm sure you've probably encountered before if you've taken another class here at this school, which is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And it's like fireworks as far as the character of God's concerned, because here is where we learn who God is according to God himself, which is Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Uh, these are the eight attributes of God. Let's make sure I got all eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. These are the eight attributes of God. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't have other attributes as well. But when Moses asked the question, God, show me your glory. God said to Moses, you can't see me. If you see me, you'll die. And Moses says to God, show me your glory. I just want to see who you really are. And God says, all right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to pass by. I'm going to declare who I am before you. And, you're going to, and, then, and I'll put my hand on you so you don't see me. And then as I leave, I'll take my hand off and you'll kind of get a glimpse of my residual glory. And as God passes by, Moses, he proclaims Yahweh, Yahweh. First thing he does is he says his own name twice. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. So that's compassionate or merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abundant in love, steadfast love, abounding in steadfast love, and abounding in faithfulness. So he's got steadfast love, he's got faithfulness, and not only that, he maintains that love, he keeps that love, generation after generation, for thousands. And he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet does not leave the guilty unpunished. God ain't no chump. God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, ab abundant in steadfast love, abundant in faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet does not leave the guilty unpunished. When God says who God is, we need to listen.
This is who God is. And we, and we, we like seven-eighths of this picture, don't we? I mean, all this stuff up here sounds really nice. We get to the, the guilty part. It's like, ooh, I don't know about that one. <laughs> but that's also because we're not suffering. Let me tell you, if you were suffering injustice, you would want God to punish the guilty, wouldn't you? And so th- those who are victims in our world, they really love that last aspect. Yeah. Okay. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. Oh, thank God for that one. If God was quick to anger, I'd be in trouble. I don't know about you. Abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, maintaining love, or keeping love, maintaining or keeping love, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, or the NIV, wickedness, rebellion, and sin, if you prefer, yet does not leave the guilty unpunished. Did you notice that this this one particular word showed up a lot? Translated in the English Standard Version, steadfast love. God is abounding in steadfast love. He keeps steadfast love. This word right here is the Hebrew chesed. Chesed. Okay? This is the word translated steadfast love. And it is one of the most important words in all of the Old Testament when it comes to understanding who God is, a proper theology. This is John Golden Gay. He writes, It, chesed, is sometimes described as covenant love, though in the Old Testament it rarely appears in the company of the word covenant. It is used in two connections. When someone makes an act of commitment for which there is no reason in terms of prior relationship, and when someone keeps their commitment when they might be expected to abandon it. For example, because the other person has done so. It is the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek agapi, love, the Greek word translated love. So what is hesed? Hesed is when God makes an agreement with someone else that they don't deserve to have, and he does it anyhow. And it's his willingness to stay faithful to that agreement, to that covenant, even after the other side has broken it. That's hesed. That's translated, in the ESV, translated, uh, steadfast love, which I think is a really good translation. The NASB translates it loving kindness, which is not an English word. Those are two words, but somehow they smush them together. The uh, King James Version translates it mercy, uh, and that's also following on the Greek translation, the Septuagint. What, what does yours say, Jenna? It just says abiding. So it just translates it as love? Okay, so the NIV translates it as love. What does the HCSB say? Faithful love. Faithful love, very nice. I like that. So this word chesed doesn't have a direct English equivalent, in other words. Some translations are going with mercy, and that's this idea of you deserve something and God's not giving it to you. Other ones are translating it Loving kindness, where God is showing kindness to someone. Other translations, especially uh, the ESV and the HCSB, are translating it according to the steadfastness or the faithfulness of that love. But the idea is that God is binding himself to a relationship with his people out of his own mercy and love for them that he is then going to stay committed to. Here's Here are the usages of the word chesed throughout the Bible. It occurs only in the Old Testament because it's a Hebrew word. But notice how much it happens in the book of Psalms. That's that top bar there. The psalmists love to sing about God's chesed. They love to sing about God's chesed more than any of the other books of the Bible like to talk about it. Psalm has 130 usages of this word, and then 2 Samuel, and then Proverbs, and Genesis, and so on. But you see, it's used throughout the Old Testament a few times. But uh, I just wanted to point out with the Psalms, 
that they absolutely love to talk about God's steadfast love. You ever heard that phrase, his mercy endures forever, or his steadfast love endures forever, or his loving kindness endures forever? Depending on what translation you read, there's that phrase that repeats throughout the Psalms over and over, his steadfast love endures forever. One more quote, this is from John Oswalt. He writes, no English word can encompass all the connotations of this Hebrew word, but its basic idea is of passionate loyalty especially of a superior to an inferior. In its basic usage, it refers to the obligations of covenant, but in the biblical experience of God, it comes to express that loyalty which goes far beyond any legal obligation and a passionate concern for the well-being of the other. It is this that God has for His people, which expresses itself in grace, mercy, unfailing love, kindness, and several other English words. So what John Oswald is saying is that God is a God of love, but that steadfast love that He's abounding in and that He that He maintains and He keeps, that love is gracious, covenant, faithfulness. It's not just love. It's not just like God being nice to you. It's gracious. In other words, you don't deserve it. And it's, it's covenantal. In other words, it binds and it's faithful. In other words, it lasts, that love. It's, it's, a, it's a loyalty. Faithfulness or loyalty. And this, more than any other attribute of God, defines who He is and how He behaves as He interacts with people. From the New Testament, we read in 1 John, God is love. It's not a new idea when you get to the New Testament. It's already there in the Hebrew Bible, but it's just expressed more in the New Testament. And we see it, the quintessential demonstration and manifestation of God's love is the cross of Christ. Right? We'll get there in a second, but I, I don't want to leave that out. Obviously, that's the one way that God shows us more than any other way that He loves us. What does the law tell you about God? When you look at the law of Moses, you know Torah? Torah. We'll give you a little Hebrew today, huh? No extra charge. The Torah is the law. And what the Torah tells us about God is that He cares about order, about justice, about mm, civilization. If you, if you read the laws of God in Exodus, Leviticus, and especially Deuteronomy, you're going to see God is a social engineer who designs a community that has order to it, has justice, and is able to have the benefits of culture and civilization because, you, because it's stable. And the, the law also tells us something else about God that we mentioned before, which is that He is exclusive. He does not want His people mixing with other nations and taking their ideas about who God is from them. He wants them to be separate. So, but more than anything else, when, when you ask the question, what does the Torah, what does the law tell you about God? It really tells you that he cares about justice because that's what law is. Law is justice, equity, and that sort of thing. And then we look at the prophets, right? As we're kind of cruising through the entire Bible here. We looked at Genesis and Exodus. We, I, in just like 30 seconds there, I just did numbers to Deuteronomy. I don't know if you noticed that. And then now we get to the prophets. What do the prophets have to tell us about God? The prophets are people who have been touched by God. They've seen visions of God. They speak on God's behalf. And what do they, what do they talk about? The prophets are constantly calling the people to repentance for going after other gods, for cheating on God. That's one of the things they, they're on about. So when it comes to the prophets, the, the Nabi, right? The prophets, or no, the, the, the Nevi'im. Yeah, Torah, Nevi'im, yeah. The prophets are on about fidelity to God. And then, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it vulnerable. Now, different prophets talk about different things based on when they lived and what was going on in the nation at that time. But in every single prophet, you could find a whole bunch of statements that talk about how the people need to be faithful to God, how they should not worship idols, how they should not cheat on God. Furthermore, the second thing you could find in all the prophets is a concern for the vulnerable in society, 
usually the orphans, the widows, the poor, people that are strangers, travelers that are coming through, uh, anybody that's vulnerable in society, the prophets are going to rebuke the power holders in the society and say, you can't take advantage of the poor. Or they'll rebuke the government and say, you can't you know, take the, this land away from this person, whoever happens to be vulnerable in society. So if the prophets are on about these two subjects so much, it tells us that God cares about our fidelity to him and God cares about the vulnerable in society very much. In fact, there are just so many verses about God's concern for the poor throughout the Bible. And then the third thing that the prophets talk about a lot is the final judgment and restoration, which that's another way to say kingdom of God. They don't use the term kingdom of God typically except for Daniel, but they'll talk about the judgment to come. They'll say, woe to you. Woe to you. The wrath of God is coming. It's, it's stored up like in a cup that he's going to pour out unless you repent. So they're always calling people to repentance. But what does this tell us about God? This tells us that God decides not to judge everyone when they sin, but that he's slow to anger. He's forgiving, but there's still this last day of judgment where he's not going to leave the guilty unpunished. And then finally, there's going to be restoration. The prophets talk about God's dream for the world. Typically, the phrase they like to use for this right here in the prophets is the day of the Lord. So from the prophets, we learn that God is a passionate lover who can't stand it when his people cheat on him. He's, he's also a punisher. He, he judges his own people. There was a time when his people would not quit cheating on him. They kept going to the idols over and over again, and they kept going to other nations for protection. And eventually God said, all right, through the prophet Jeremiah, that's enough. You're done. And he kicked them out of the land. For 70 years, God kicked his own people out of the land and sent them to another land. <laughs> he evicted them. God's the landlord. They're the tenant. They wouldn't, they wouldn't stay faithful to him, so he's like, you're out, you're done. And he sent his people out of the land for 70 years. They finally came back, and you know, they, they were cured of idolatry after that, thankfully. All right, another couple of things is that God refuses to abandon his people in their suffering. And that's this whole period known in the, uh, the prophets as the exile, okay? So you have the pre-exilic prophets, the prophets in the Bible that are prophesying about civilization and how they need to be faithful to God and they have to, they have to care for the vulnerable in society and that there is final judgment and restoration to come. But then eventually the people continue cheating on God and so they get brought away into captivity. And then during that period of the captivity, which is known as the exile, which lasts for 70 years, God does not abandon his people. He has exilic prophets. He has Jeremiah. He has Daniel is an exilic prophet. Ezekiel is an exilic prophet. And so God doesn't abandon his people in their time of suffering. He's still there with them, speaking to them through the prophets. So even, even in God's punishment, he still suffers along with his people. He's still, he's still there with his people. And that's an important aspect of God is that even in his punishment, he doesn't abandon his people. I don't know how to say that in like a, a word or two, but God's pretty awesome. I guess that's what I'm trying to say overall. Let's take a look at Lamentations 3. Have you, have you ever read Lamentations before? Anybody? Honestly, I'd be surprised if you had. Cosmos, you have read Lamentations? Anybody else? Read Lamentations. Uh, Lamentations is a really, 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 really sad book of the Bible. It's a real sad book. What had happened is God's people would not be faithful to him, so he sent the Babylonians to Jerusalem. And the Babylonians came and they surrounded the city. And the last king of Israel, a man named Zedekiah, Instead of fighting, instead of staying, instead of negotiating, like a coward, he escaped through the city walls with a group of his own men, including a couple of his own sons. And so Zedekiah and his men escaped 
while the, the Babylonians had the city surrounded. So the Babylonians were able to chase down Zedekiah and they captured him. And what they did is they said to him, they basically told him that he was done. To show how serious they were, they executed his sons right before his eyes. And then they poked his eyes out. They put his eyes out so that the last thing he would ever see is the execution of his own sons and that the last king of Israel, or Judah in this case, would know that there is no future and that Babylon, the boot of Babylon, is on the neck of Judah for good. And so once that happened and the king was executed, the Babylonians entered the city and they destroyed the city. They raped the women, they murdered people, they captured whoever they could, and they marched them away out to the east, to Babylonia. After this happens, some people had escaped, and they stayed in that area. And the uh, Babylonians put a guy in charge, a guy named Gedaliah. I'm sure you've never heard of him because he was a total loser. Anyhow, Gedaliah was in charge of the few people that the Babylonians left behind to farm the land. And you know what the, the uh, Judeans did? They decided they would gather together and execute Gedaliah for partnering with the Babylonians. And Jeremiah said, don't do that. Do not. <laughs> don't kill the one guy that the Babylonians just left in charge. They've just destroyed us. There's hardly any of us left. Don't do, and they, they're like, forget you, Jeremiah, and they killed Gedaliah. And so the Babylonians came and they were going to attack again. So everybody ran away to Egypt and they hid out in Egypt for a time. And then we get the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is like wailing and weeping. It's, it's the saddest book because it's talking about what the city has been through. And it says, um, I am the man, it's a poem. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his head, hand again and again the whole day long. This is the heart of the people of God after this trauma of losing everything. There's literally no more Israel. There's no more Jerusalem. There's no more Judah. It's gone. It's done. It's part of Babylonia, the great empire who worships the god Marduk. We read in verse 3, or verse 4, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with the blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turns aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. It's talking about God and what he's done to his people. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Can you imagine saying that? I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from Yahweh. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The chesed of Yahweh never ceases. The steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You ever heard the old hymn, Great is thy faithfulness? It comes out of the greatest pain imaginable. And so, even in the time of the exile and the suffering, when everything has gone wrong, everything is lost, the audacity of hope wells up within the people of God because they know that even as bad as it is, His hesed endures forever. His his steadfast love, he's abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness. He maintains his love, and thank God 
He forgives. Because 70 years after that, He brought those people back to that land. He brought those people back to that land, and they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem under Zerubbabel and in the time of Joshua. And we read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah because that's not the end of the story. There's also post-exilic prophets as well, post-exile prophets, and they continue on preaching you know, what God wants His people to do. And then we get to the New Testament, and we find something that wasn't totally foreign to the Old Testament, but something that totally overshadows everything that had come before, or at least most of what came before, and that is Jesus' insistence and repeated calling of God Father. He calls God His Father. Over and over again, Jesus calls God His Father. Now, there are a few verses in the Old Testament where God is called Father, but it's our Father. Jesus calls God my Father. And He tells us to do the same. And so, with Jesus, we come to realize that God is not just this Creator. He's not just a lawgiver. He's not just a passionate lover who... Uh, wants us to be faithful to Him and who continues with us in our suffering so that eventually He can bring us out and forgive us. But He's also a Father. He's someone who cares about us the way a father cares about a child. And this is supremely demonstrated, as I already mentioned to you before, and we'll have a whole lecture on this, which is why I'm not going to get into it now. But God's love and His fatherhood is supremely demonstrated to us in the cross of Christ. That more than anything else, shows God's love. I know in a lot of our songs, we say that Jesus loved us so much that He died for us, and that's true. But more than that, what the Bible says over and over is that the cross, the suffering of Christ, is a demonstration of God's love for us. Think of John 3.16 again. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, right? I mean, it is Jesus' love, but it's, it's, it's even more so a result of God's love. That's it for this lecture. Thanks for tuning in. Next time, we'll look at some difficult verses about God and consider His oneness. But before closing out, I did want to read out a quick comment from Tom Livingston on an article I had written a couple of years ago, in 2015, called Rejecting the Kingdom Too Hedonistic. And that's where I laid out the case that Christians considered any kind of pleasure whatsoever to be evil. And as a result of that, didn't like the idea of living an embodied existence on a renewed world where there would be eating and drinking of pleasurable foods. So anyhow, Livingston writes, Thanks for such an excellent article great research and conclusions. I wholeheartedly agree with your conclusions. I also have observed the modern evangelical church. It strikes me as being conflicted and eclectic in its approach to hedonism, asceticism, and morality. Some seem to recognize the dangers and errors of asceticism, and some appear unwittingly to support the ascetic traditions that continue to plague the church without realizing they do. They are eclectic without realizing they have taken a little from the ascetics and a little from the non-ascetics and blended it into a hodgepodge of theological and practical Christian life ideas. I say unwittingly because I think most of them who cling to ascetic ideas do so without realizing they are conditioned by early church ascetic teachers like Origen. Nowhere is this more pronounced than their confusion over sexual issues, personal pleasure, and materialism. Anyway, thanks for your great research. As some interesting remarks there, Tom. I appreciate you writing in. If you're curious about this whole subject of asceticism, uh, you can find that article on restitutio.org. Just click on the tab for articles and take a look at it. It's the one called Rejecting the Kingdom Part 2. I agree with you, Tom, that the church, by and large, is uh, tends to be rather extremist on this issue. You have a lot of holiness traditions within the charismatic denominations that absolutely and categorically deny basic goods that God has given all of us in in their zeal for holiness, they have become ascetic. And so as, as one of my old teachers always used to say, don't be more righteous than Jesus. Jesus was able to spend time with the common person, have a nice dinner, enjoy 
the finer things in life. Not that he was wealthy by any means, but he was able to enjoy himself. So uh, that was certainly done within the boundaries of righteousness. Um, and then on the other end, the, the tendency of certain prosperity gospel preachers to uh, purchase $10 million houses so that uh, they can have, uh, you know, and private jets and fancy cars and all this. <laughs> I think there is a line where we move from just simply enjoying what God has blessed us with to uh, greed and to overindulgence. So um, I, I'm not here to figure out that line for anyone else, but uh, you know, I think it is definitely something worth thinking about. So I thank you for writing in, Tom. Uh, just one last thing I wanted to mention is that the Theological Conference is coming up in 14 days. It's April 11th, and uh, so far as I know, you can still go. So if you're thinking about it, if you have thought about it, and you would like more information, go to theologicalconference.org. It looks like we have a full lineup of speakers, including Dan Gill, Elaine Roselle, Bill Schlegel, myself, Ken LaProd, Keegan Chandler, Tracy Zikovich, Dale Tuggy, Carlos Jimenez, Anthony Buzzard, and Dennis Baldwin. So... If you are interested, it would be great to meet up with you there at the Theological Conference. I pretty much go every year and have a great time. I'm looking forward to my paper there as well. I'm looking at the subject of, did Christians believe in the Trinity before Nicaea? And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the throes of doing the research on that and producing a a short essay. This year I've been limited to only 10 pages. I think last year it was 20. Uh, in the years before that, you, you could go a little longer. So it's it's getting shorter and shorter. But before long, we'll just be, it'll just be a tweet. Just kidding. But anyhow, it is always a nice time to gather with a number of believers that I don't normally get to see. And it's always rather delightful to meet uh, new folks every year and uh, to make new friends and meet people, sometimes even from overseas, as they join in in the action. So take a look at that. If you want to come, it's theologicalconference.org. They've got registration. They've got housing options for you. Or if you're local to the Hampton, Georgia area, you can uh, get a much lower cost, much lower price, and just drive in or, you know, or even just rent your own hotel if they're booked up, which I doubt they would be. But uh, check that out if you're interested. I'll be there in a couple weeks. Looking forward to it. And that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.